Hello, little guy. It's the sweetie man coming. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, you're listening to Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan. And Corey, I don't know if you like your martini shaken or stirred, and I don't really care, but I'm sure both of us care about the fate of the iconic film character and franchise they call Bond, James Bond. It was recently announced that the production of the 23rd official entry into the series, previously scheduled for release in 2011 or 2012, was put on a definite hold as MGM Studios and EON Productions sort through a few issues preventing the film from being made. Nikki Fink over at Deadline.com reports that because MGM is teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, as she puts it, EON could find another distributor for the film starring Daniel Craig as the British secret agent. Rumors circulated over director Sam Mendes as the probable helmer of the next Bond movie, following in line with Mark Forster, another unlikely Bond director who made the last one Quantum of Solace. And in a statement... Bond representatives Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli said the following, Due to the continuing uncertainty surrounding the future of MGM and the failure to close the sale of the studio, we have suspended development of Bond 23 indefinitely. We do not know when development will resume and do not have a date for the release of Bond 23. Now, Corey, obviously EON and MGM, they've got their differences to sort out, but you really must acknowledge that the Bond franchise isn't in particularly poor shape considering the last two films starring Daniel Craig, uh, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, each gross nearly $600 million internationally. But I'm curious... If you have been satisfied with the latest installments of the Bond franchise, or would you like to see a change in the creative direction it's taken since 2006, or did you even care about it at all and uh, think it's sort of a stale franchise that peaked early in the 60s and 70s and lost steam maybe in the 70s and 80s? I love the Bond movies, and I might have said after Die Another Day in 2002 that maybe it was time to put uh, Bond out to pasture, but uh, 2006's Casino Royale is awesome. Now I'm not I'm not a particularly big fan of Quantum of Solace. I think that movie suffers some fundamental flaws that that were uh, problems from the script, and due to the writer's strike, they weren't able to address those. So that movie has considerable issues, not the least of which it doesn't really have a villain that makes any sense or anything like that that Bond movies usually have. Um, but I think the creative direction that Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace set the path for is is the way to go. Um, sort of a James Bond as as you know Jason Bourne, um, grittier action. You know Daniel Craig's the right guy for that. It's the right style to take. People like it. These movies have made a lot of money. I think it's a shame that this movie's been delayed because with Sam Mendes rumored to be at the helm, I. I was really looking forward to this. So Sam Mendes attached excites you? Yeah, you know, I, I must admit, finding untraditional sort of Bond directors, I think that's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, and even if Sam Mendes uh, is sort of like a completely untraditional choice um, whose previous work does not reveal any sort of like aptitude for this sort of thing, I think that he, I, I think he's got it in him, and I, and I, I really like Sam Mendes as a director. Um, 
Which I couldn't say about Mark Forster, to be honest. Well, when they announced that Mark Forster would be the uh, director of Quantum of Solace, I have to say I was a little... Uh, I don't know. I It, it kind of left me speechless in terms of, you know, what I thought I might expect from yeah. a Forster-James Bond movie. I mean, Forster, you know, he, he had made some uh, fun movies, but nothing... Uh, with the set pieces you would expect uh, in an action film like James Bond, and I, you know, I think that this is a franchise, like you said, when uh, it was sort of teetering on uh, disaster uh, creatively with something like Die Another Day, or even before that with The World Is Not Enough. Yeah. I, it really deserved to be in more careful hands uh, than it, it. They were just sort of toying around with it and uh, focusing a little more on the Bond girls they should cast and the gadgets they should feature, um, and it, it resulted in nothing really to speak of uh, although Pierce Brosnan he did make uh, what I thought was one really good Bond movie in GoldenEye I think that's one of the best Bond movies right but let me counter one of your points uh, from earlier James Bond is James Bond he's not Jason Bourne and it seems like I mean, it's fairly obvious that the latest installments have been influenced by the uh, sort of uh, kinetic um, action style of the Bourne sure. series. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you're going to be influenced <clears throat> by something, it doesn't hurt that it's uh, a solid action franchise and character uh, that they created over there with the Bourne series. But um, I don't think James Bond is necessarily uh, a character or a franchise that needs any more influence than it might have had before. I think that the influence it deserves is uh, what came in the early 60s um, <clears throat> when they first developed the character with uh, Connery and even as they moved into the 70s with Roger Moore I think they had a really good thing going and um, just because Bourne uh, achieved the financial success that it did and obviously has uh, considerable appeal to younger audiences I, you know, I don't think that you really have to uh, tailor James Bond to that do you? Well no, not not on a character level or even like with the plots of these movies but but like you said there's no question that stylistically Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace both take uh, considerable influence from the from the Bourne movies just in the in the real world grittier action scenes like the parkour scene at the beginning of uh, Casino Royale mm -hmm. um, that's I mean that's the sort of influence I mean right. I, I, don't, I don't mean that that uh, James Bond should suddenly develop amnesia and start you know, wandering Europe, which he might, which he might, yeah. Um, but 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 I think that stylistic influence. I mean, certainly that's what audiences want to see. Mm -hmm. um, that grittier, I guess. I hesitate to say more realistic because it's not at all. But it certainly looks more realistic. Um, that that sort of action. That's what they want. I, you know, I I just think with Bond, I'm not really looking for a handheld camera uh -huh. uh, to present these action sequences. I I'm into more of like a static, uh, way more uh, stylish. Um, set piece, I sure. guess. It's what I'm used to and it's what I like about Bond. I mean, if you want to create a new secret agent character uh, and have that influenced by Bourne, or if this is basically a Bourne script that you have converted into a Bond script, right. you know, that's one thing, you know. But don't make it Bond. And let, let's move on to the guy who's playing him. And you said that you uh, think Daniel Craig is the right guy for what they're trying to do specifically. Yes. I like Daniel Craig. I think he's a solid actor, and I think he's done a uh, fair job. I think he's done a good job, I'll say. I'm not going to be too hard on him. But I just don't know that he was the guy that I had in mind. I don't think anybody really had Daniel Craig in mind when they were thinking. I think the easy choices were guys like, uh, you know, more suave, 
uh, appealing guys like Clive Owen or Jude Law or even Hugh Jackman, I think, was uh, in the running hmm. uh, back in the day. Um, but Daniel Craig is sort of this brutish, tough guy who will basically beat you up if you don't like him or do what he uh, asks you to do. And, you know, they really emphasize that point of license to kill. But do you think that if, you know, they do find... They, they'll eventually make a 23rd Bond movie mm-hmm. and they'll make more after that. But do you think Craig is the guy to continue as the face of this franchise? Yeah, I'm going to say so, if only because I was so frustrated by the end of Quantum of Solace and all of those sort of plot threads that it left dangling or didn't even address mm-hmm. that um, just on a personal selfish level I want to see that storyline resolved maybe they can do a Daniel Craig Bond trilogy or something mm-hmm. and, and then move on but I do I mean I do like Daniel Craig a lot as, well, as Bond well you know again I like him too but you know when you're looking back on who they might have cast yeah. I, I think that the obvious choice was Clive Owen uh, to take the place, um, he had action experience in uh, the BMW shorts that he did, which were excellent. Uh, and um, that, yeah. that there was sort of a James Bond vibe going on there. It almost felt like they were basically training this guy mm. to take over for Pierce Brosnan. I mean, he does have uh, a, a really great sense of humor in some of the roles we've seen him, and he's a great actor as we've seen in Closer and maybe uh, Children of Men. Um, and I think that they might have been overthinking it when they were going through this casting process when they thought maybe Owen was just a little too perfect for this role. Well, you know, I one of the things you mentioned as a positive attribute, I think that's the reason they didn't cast him, his sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace don't have much of a sense of humor. None. At all. Yeah. And I think they took I think they took their model for that, for sort of the, you know, very serious, humorless uh, prequel from Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. I think Batman Begins was a big influence on, on Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, they wanted they wanted a guy who looked like he could convincingly, you know, beat some people, and not one who would look good, I suppose, like sipping martinis in a tuxedo. Right. Uh, just for the, I guess, the brutish origins of the character. What sort of bothers me about uh, the status of the Bond series at the moment is the continuing narrative thread that they've created uh, with these uh, last two movies. And again, it's something that I'm not used to, but it is something that I'm open to. I think if they can uh, create a compelling story with uh, nice arcs and good characters, I'd be totally open to that. If it entertains me, it entertains me. And if James Bond is doing what he does, then I'm there. But uh, again, what we're used to is just sort of uh, a day or month in the life of James Bond with each movie. We don't necessarily know... uh, the timeline right. of what's going on and that's something that I really liked about it you just have another adventure with him but is is the this sort of um, sequel format I guess that they're going for now is that working for you it does in theory but mm-hmm. Quantum of Solace so thoroughly dropped the ball uh, in satisfying like those storylines that, that it just you know I, I would have rather that been a one-off story to be honest since it was a writer's strike script and since it didn't do any job of satisfying fans of Casino Royale in my opinion. Well, and before we move on, um, if, say, uh, I I think a really uh, trendy word that might have a negative effect on Hollywood uh, as it continues is reboot. Yeah. Uh, It seems like they Hmm. want to reboot everything, uh, even after they've rebooted it in the past couple of years, and uh, I, I would say that we'll probably see something like that here with James Bond in the next couple of years when they think that Daniel Craig has grown stale or uh, what they're trying to do has. But obviously, if it's grossing uh, $600 million overseas, there's nothing really stale about that in the eyes of a studio. Um, But if it does, 
Do you have anybody in mind that you would like to see as the next James Bond? Oh, man. Um, or is there a director you would like to see take on the franchise? You know, honestly, uh, when you mentioned those BMW shorts, mm-hmm. I just thought about how cool it would be to have Tony Scott direct a Bond movie. I mean, he's British, mm-hmm. so he fulfills one of those requirements. All right, he directed the short with Clive Owen, yeah. and I believe James Brown was also in yeah, that I think short. So. I think it was James Brown. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, I always thought that Soderbergh would be really good That'd for the be Bond so cool. franchise. And, I, you know, I read that he actually was offered a Bond movie, and when he asked for full creative autonomy, they wouldn't give it to him. And so he <laughs> said, peace, I'm out of here. But now he's making uh, sort of his own secret agent movie uh, that's coming out soon. Knockout. Yeah, Knockout. So maybe we'll see a sort of pseudo Soderbergh James Bond. But does any actor come to mind? Not offhand. Not I offhand. Mean, you know, I've always liked Clive Owen. Um he, I mean, maybe he is a little too perfect for that role. Well, you know? I mean, if he's perfect, yeah. give it to know. him. I don't know. I mean, you know, my brother, um, who has strange opinions uh, just for the sake of it sometimes, he <laughs> suggested uh, Ed Westwick from Gossip, from Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl? Yeah, in a few years. Hmm. So whatever that is. Yeah, and then I, I believe our, fr- our friend Ben Stark actually, uh, I don't know the actor's name, but he recommended Desmond from Lost. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah? Are you down with that? <laughs> That would be the coolest thing ever. Well, right before um, they cast Daniel Craig, and there was just kind of this uh, speculation on who it might be. This was on, uh, I believe, around 2004, 2005, when they were trying to figure out who it was going to be. And this was on the heels of the success of the Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, the first movie. Uh And my choice, my risky choice here, was Johnny Depp as Bond. Hmm. And it's an American. He's right. a big star and everything. But if they were going to reboot, this is a guy who can do British, obviously. Uh, and he was hot at the time. And this was a franchise that needed a serious pulse or a serious. Uh, it needed serious help. But look, man, I think I was. I think I was right there, and they missed the <laughs> boat on that. Uh, but I doubt that will ever happen. And they probably made the right decision. Uh, but Corey, another news: Green Hornet, which is being distributed by. Sony Pictures is uh, moving its release date from December 22nd of this year to Martin Luther King weekend, which is January 14th, 2011, so it can be converted into 3D. Now, there have been a lot of rumors of problems with uh, this comic book uh, television show adaptation uh, to the big screen uh, with some rival studios, and they're calling reporters and saying that this movie, uh, based on what they know about the production and the content, is unreleasable, but Sony Pictures, of course, is denying it and saying no. Uh, and this is the film that is co-written by uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and starring Seth Rogen as the Green Hornet. And, Corey, uh, what I want to know is, um, I mean, last last time we were here two weeks ago, we let the world know how we felt about 3D, but upon the news of studios opting to retrofit this as well as M. Night Shyamalan's The Last Airbender, which is due this summer, how do you really feel about this move to convert the Green Hornet in 3D? And another question, does pushing back the date worry you more about the 3D conversion or the quality of the film? Well, let me just say that um, in this particular instance with the Green Hornet, I'm not as worried about the 3D conversion because it has undergone no post-production at all yet, and its special effects have not been started upon. So, since they've made this call already before even doing any of the special effects, they're going to be able to design the special effects with 3D in mind, which will be a little better. Um... As far as pushing back the date, this worries me a lot more about the quality of the film, or at least the perceived quality of the film. And I and I think I 
know exactly why the studio is kind of feeling crazy about that. I think it can be traced entirely back to director Michel Gondry, who seems like the most untraditional choice for a lighthearted superhero caper movie mm-hmm. um, that you could possibly find. You know, this seems like another where the wild things are type situation. Big budget studio calls in a known auteur with crazy leanings um, to make a big budget tentpole of sorts and when the auteur delivered a intensely personal weird work the studio freaked out. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not saying Gondry is incapable uh, of delivering an impersonal work because I've been rather disappointed with his output of late uh, but I feel like his weird tendencies probably shown through in this a little more than the studio was perhaps expecting, and that's why it's been pushed back. And that that could be the rumors. Uh, that could be the source of the rumors that it's unreleasable. Well, and like you said, um, in terms of the effects and the positive direction that could go in, I think if there's anybody whose uh, take on 3D that I would be interested in, it might be Michelle Gondry's. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially with the retrofit, uh, which you know I haven't really seen yet uh, that I know of. Maybe some that I have in the past were retrofit. I, I doubt mm-hmm. it, but. Um, but I think, you know, a, a Michelle Gondry 3D movie wouldn't be such a bad thing. No. And, and even though that I'm not a big fan of 3D, if there's somebody I'm willing to give a chance, it's him. But, I mean, all you really need to see from Michelle Gondry, aside from his good feature films, is the, that DVD, The Works of Michelle Gondry. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is unbelievable. Can't recommend that highly enough. Yeah, seriously. Um, but, Corey, let's take a break. And when we come back, we will delve into a week late, I might add. But I think it's totally worth it. We will talk about Kick-Ass the latest from director Matthew Vaughn. So please do stick around. This is Aspect Radio. We'll be right back. This is Ono and the Tiger Pit with Where's Your White Pony Now? Stick around. There's two ways you can go on this job. My way or the highway. 90.7. Welcome back to Aspect Radio here on 90.7 The Capstone. This is Corey Kraft. Now, Kick-Ass, the third feature from director Matthew Vaughn, was released last weekend to a storm of controversy and decent box office returns. The movie, based on the comic series from Mark Millar, writer of Wanted, tells the story of nerdy Dave Lazuski, played by Aaron Johnson, who can soon be seen as the young John Lennon in an upcoming biopic. Dave, a comic book fan, grows tired of living in a city where nobody helps anyone else, and after ordering a scuba suit and mask, adopts the mantle of kick-ass and becomes a masked vigilante. Dave becomes an internet phenomenon and attracts the attention of two rival factions, a crime boss played by Mark Strong and his syndicate of bad guys, and the more experienced vigilantes Big Daddy and Hit Girl, a father and daughter team played by Nicolas Cage and Chloe Grace Moretz. When Kick-Ass is introduced into the equation, things start to escalate, and they escalate quickly, particularly after the crime boss's teenage son, played by Superbad's Christopher Mintz Plass, get involved in, gets involved in the superhero game for his own reasons. Now, its confrontational title should clue you in, but Kick-Ass isn't exactly interested in playing it safe or nice. 
From its opening shots, which detail the accidental death of a wannabe superhero, Kick-Ass meets out the punishment to its young characters in surprising and unexpectedly graphic ways. And this is where most of the controversy is centered. Um, I, I would say particularly most of the controversy is centered around the character of Hit-Girl, an 11-year-old girl who murders bad guys in graphic and stylized fashion. Now let's be real here, Ben. The young cast has not suffered. This is all simulated, and it's not a Werner Herzog film. Um, and it seems to me like more people are upset about the bad words Hit Girl says while she's killing people than the scenes of violence themselves. Now, I wasn't the greatest fan of this movie, but I do find that it introduces some interesting questions about film violence and, uh, and critics' reaction to it. So let's talk about the reaction. Um, are critics who are, o are so upset about the violence in this movie being hypocrites, or is there something to their criticism? I don't think there's something to their criticism, to be honest with you, and I wouldn't really call them hypocrites either. I don't really understand why uh, guys like Roger Ebert and even Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune find this movie to be morally reprehensible. That seems uh -huh. to be the uh, trending topic uh, in a lot of their reviews. Uh, I found it incredibly fun, and I think that Hit Girl is going to become a bit of a cultural or cult phenomenon uh, and justifiably so. I think that if there's anything that is great about Kick-Ass, and I wouldn't say this is a great film, but if there's anything that's great inside of it, it is certainly the Hit Girl arc and Big Daddy as well. Anytime she's on screen, I'm completely uh, involved. Uh, I, I feel uh, invigorated. It feels like a great time at the movies, and any time she's not, I'm wishing she was there. It mm -hmm. sort of has the same syndrome as uh, the Joker in The Dark Knight, uh, where you couldn't wait until the character came back on screen. Uh, but in terms of the violence, uh, you know, I, I would sort of call uh, what you see here, violence-wise, sort of a, a, a cross between Kill Bill Volume 1 and maybe Sin City, sure. where Kill Bill is a little more cartoonish in Sin City, uh, while keeping with uh, you know the cartoonish feel it's a little more graphic and sort of uh, earns that R rating that it gets and certainly it does here too but you know maybe it's because I'm uh, of a younger generation I'm not a parent yet uh, but I didn't find um, anything overly grotesque about the violence I never was uh, it never really took me out of it and I never asked myself why did they let a, an 11 year old child uh, use a gun in this movie why did they let her shoot people in the head uh, cut people's legs off, mm -hmm. uh, just completely slice and dice her way through the film. I just had a lot of fun. Um, it's not something that, you know, gets me on a personal level, and rarely does a movie do that uh, unless, you know, it's Schindler's List or a documentary that might have some sort of, uh, you know, very deep and personal message that the filmmaker's trying to convey, and it's something that affects me. But honestly, Corey, um, I loved Hit Girl. I can't wait to see the movie again just for her. Mm -hmm. And I would follow that character and uh, Big Daddy um, into other movies. And I think, you know, and we'll talk about this a little later, I think that that's a character that deserves its own trilogy, let alone other movie. Hmm. You know, I, I wasn't offended by the violence of Kick-Ass. I, I am something of a fan of violent movies, not necessarily as its own subgenre, but... but Lionsgate, the studio that released Kick-Ass, has a tendency to release some crazy stuff like uh, like Crank and its sequel and uh, Punisher Warzone, uh, all movies that I really enjoy. But I think the issue that I took with Kick-Ass, and particularly its depictions of violence, all had to do with tone. 
Um, this is a movie that caterwauls from teen comedy, uh, and I hate to use super bad as the antecedent because, you know, let's face it, people, teen comedies existed before super bad. That's not really the touchstone for that genre. True that. But, but, you, but you understand what I'm saying. It, it, it goes from teen comedy to superhero movie to extraordinarily violent superhero movie. Um, and it, it does so, I, I suppose, uh, a little too freewheeling for my tastes, mm-hmm. I, I guess. I, I, you know, I, I tried to, to quantify exactly how I reacted to Kick-Ass uh, and why I didn't respond to it as much as I, I did to, say, something like Crank or something like Punisher Warzone, which are equally violent and silly. Um, and, and I think that what I came up with, what were these issues in tone and were... You know the the sort of mean spirit that I feel exists in this movie. Um, not that I'm again necessarily opposed to that on principle, uh, but I but I had a really confused reaction to Kickass, and I you know, I mean, did this bother you? Did the change the, the, the change in tone bother you at all? At uh, any point? The movie has an identity crisis. It really does. Yeah. Um, like you said, it does go from being this teenage comedy where you have this sort of uh, schlubby protagonist. Um, who wants to be a superhero, but uh, as his friend, uh, played by Clark Duke, um, tells him early in the movie if anybody ever tried that, they'd get killed the first time or they'd get beaten up uh, rather quickly, and he finds that out to be he finds that to be true right. in his first uh, attempt at being a superhero. Yeah, he he gets beat and then um, hit by a car. Right, he gets yeah, stabbed his first time out. And uh, but see, those are that, that's what I really liked about. Um, that movie mm-hmm. within the movie because I think you've got two or three separate movies going on at once. Right. Uh, and I don't know if you have the same identity issues with uh, the original text here. Uh, I never read that. I've never read it either, to be honest. Um, and, you know, I'm sure Matthew Vaughn was probably as loyal as he could be to it. I haven't heard much backlash from uh, kick ass um, comic book followers yeah. uh, to the film. I think that the movie is pretty warmly received overall uh, by geeky fans out there. Uh, but um, again, you, I, what's the name of the uh, Aaron Johnson? Is he the Aaron actor? Johnson. Aaron Johnson. I, you know, at first I, I, I kind of got taken out of it. He kind of reminded me of this, uh, and it, this is really, you know, judge me if you will. But he reminded me of this actor on the show Sex in the City, uh, played by uh, I don't know the guy's name, but he kind of has this raspy voice like that, and he plays the redhead's boyfriend. I don't. And it I just seems like this overly it. exaggerated voice. And uh, but then you know it, did, it didn't bother me too much as the film went on. I was actually kind of intrigued by his character and uh, what was going on and his motives for becoming a superhero and what he was up to. But then uh, when he goes out and he tries to become this vigilante and he gets into the trouble that he does, you don't really see uh, the hit girl. Uh, story coming, you just it just kind of cuts to it. You right. kind of you cut to um, Moretz and Nicolas Cage uh, in this wonderful scene, setting their characters it's up. It's pretty. It's pretty excellent. Yeah, it's amazing where uh, they're basically trying out a bulletproof vest. Uh, that to me felt fresh. It, you know, the yeah. dialogue felt fresh. The performances were cool. And then you move into their scene at the bowling alley, uh, which is it's just terrific. And this is stuff that you've probably seen in the promotional material because it's been 
it went viral pretty early uh, you can see it on YouTube now you can see some of the best scenes on YouTube and um, but you go back and forth like that because you have all of these characters that seem to matter to the story you have uh, kick-ass you have hit girl and big daddy and then you have uh, red mist that character that has its own uh, arc and it just sort of jumbles the narrative so much that you don't really know what's contributing to the bigger picture of this movie uh, are we worried about what's going to happen to Big Daddy and Hit Girl? How how their characters affect uh, the story and the bad guy played by Mark Strong, Frank D'Amico, or do we care more about Kickass and his quest to be, uh, you know, a righteous vigilante in New York City? Um, it is a little confusing, but nothing about it really communicated that this was a bad movie or a bad experience mm-hmm. to me. It helped that the characters were likable. Uh, the action was solid. The film looked good. They ch- they chose good pop songs if they if they overused pop songs throughout the movie. Right. Um, so I wasn't bothered. You know, to me, if I if I have to put a letter grade on this movie, I'm in the B to B plus area because again, I and I had a conversation with you. I, I actually saw you last week uh, on the strip after a day, and you just kind of had this perplexed feeling about it where you just kind of didn't really know how to feel because you said the film entertained you but it didn't really go beyond that yeah i mean unquestionably this is a fun movie to watch Mm -hmm. it's a good looking movie Mm -hmm. it has very good performances i I think that uh nicholas cage and um christopher mintz plass and and chloe grace moretz are are all very good Mm -hmm. um but i i I must admit i still have this perplexed reaction towards this movie Mm -hmm. um and I, I don't really know why that is. I still, and you know, I, I would like to see this again. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that very many times about movies that I, I feel a negative reaction towards. But I feel like this movie at least deserves it, if, if only because the visceral reaction you have watching it the first time surely overcomes any sort of like attention to greater depth that mm-hmm. a viewer might have. So I feel like I owe it another viewing. Um, as for as far as a first viewing, if I had to put a letter grade to it, C plus in that neighborhood. C, if only because the the uh, the sort of the jumbled uh, identity crisis that we spoke of earlier is overwhelming to me, and the violence took me aback um, in a, in a really strange way mm-hmm. that I can't really articulate I suppose well you know in a lot of people have either been praising or criticizing the sort of satirical tone that the the film is mm-hmm. going for and how it either um, accomplishes that or fails to do so in that it's sort of poking fun at superhero movies and trying to sort of deconstruct the genre when uh, it basically becomes a superhero right. movie uh, during the climax you have this huge action sequence featuring your main characters and then you have a scene at the end that's sort of a nod uh, to the audience that we're going to have kick-ass part two eventually or it, maybe it's a jo- maybe it's a joke on the audience saying uh, you know we're, we're setting up a sequel when there's actually not going to be a sequel we'll see how that turns out uh, depending on the financial performance of the film but here's uh, what I think is the big problem with the movie um, and I, there's a line in it that I think reflects the situation, uh-huh. and it's when uh, Aaron Johnson, as Kickass, is talking to Hit Girl and Big Daddy, and she sees what, and he sees what they're able to accomplish as vigilantes, and he's completely impressed and blown away by it compared to what he can do, and he says, "I can't compete with you guys," and that is the entire thing I took away from his character versus their characters mm-hmm. as an audience member. 
Kick-Ass can't compete with Hit Girl and Big Daddy in terms of entertaining me. And again, I want to see more from these characters, and I don't really know why we didn't get more. And, you know, you have to sort of uh, count your blessings, I guess, and, and not ask for more than you get. Uh, a little less would have been worse, and maybe a little more would have been overdoing it. I don't really feel that way. I think if we got more, if we got an entire film or more films dedicated to the way, to these characters and how they were written and how they were executed here, mm -hmm. I would have been happy. Because I think one of the best scenes of the year and one that I'll talk about uh, spring of next year is uh, the first time we see Hit Girl in action at Rasul's apartment uh, when it plays uh, the Banana Splits song uh. Uh, by the Dickies. You didn't like that? I didn't like the song choice. Oh man! I, I thought that was um, I thought that overdid it just a bit. I loved it, man. And it was see what what confused me though about that is that in the promotional material, uh, they play that song to the hallway sequence uh, towards the end of mm -hmm. the movie, which uh, features Joan Jett's "Bad Reputation" uh, or the theme song for Freaks and Geeks, as I know it now. <laughs> um, but look, Corey. What I don't understand is how you, you, you didn't you, you find the movie fun and uh, you say it's entertaining and I, I'm wondering why can't you just say I like it, it, it you know if it entertains me that means it's probably a good movie yet weeks back or months back we can go uh, I can't remember if this was January or February you come on here and rant and rave about something as forgettable and mediocre as the Wolfman oh the Wolfman was fun dude I I don't know I I just Look, nobody has been more perplexed about my reaction to this movie than I am, uh -huh. because I, I mean, I feel like somebody's going to come and take my geek credentials away from me, um, for for ha having you know for having ambivalence towards this movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I'm unfamiliar with the source material. I suppose since it is a Mark Millar book, I should have expected some sort of crazy mix of like puerile edginess mm -hmm. and you know super violence. Uh, just because Wanted is like that. But at the same time, I I just, I don't really like that. I mean, some of it's okay, but like, I, I like Wanted as a film, but that deviates from the comic so much. Well, I don't know, I'm trailing off. Yeah, well, why don't we take a break and Corey will go see the movie again uh, while <laughs> we're gone and see how he feels when we come back, and he'll give you a definitive answer on how he feels about the movie. Uh, but when we come back, we will uh, give you a few announcements, give you a few DVD picks. This is Aspect Radio, and this is Flight of the Concourse with If You're Into It. Good song. Back here on Aspect Radio, this is Ben Flanagan, I'm joined by Corey Kraft, and we just got done talking a little kick-ass, before that a little James Bond, and I thought that this was some appropriate music to uh, bring <laughs> us into our final segment here. This is actually Marco Benevento, his take on the Carly Simon classic, Nobody Does It Better, from which James Bond movie, Corey? Oh my god. Oh no. It's The Spy Who Loved Me. Um... I hate I'm sorry to have bailed you out right there. I'm sorry, audience. No, it's okay. It's you know it's hard. It's hard to attach them if 
the song titles don't match the film right. titles. You know what I mean? I'm embarrassed. No, it's okay. This is actually my favorite James Bond theme song. Yeah. Uh, I love it. I think it's a perfect pop song. It's terrific. And I think you can actually find uh, Radiohead singing this song. Uh, I think I have that. Yeah, fairly often. Yeah. They, you know, they, they do it. You can catch that Found on YouTube. Found a bootleg somewhere. Do you have a favorite James Bond theme song? I mean, just probably just for corny power pop purposes live and let die really yeah yeah do you like uh mccartney or guns and roses version uh mccartney mccartney all the way good call well it's time for craft services Corey. this was a big week um and uh coming into the studio ben and i actually had a conversation about my first recommendation a movie that uh loyal listeners will know i also did not like very much uh to carry a theme apparently uh, Avatar, James Cameron's mega blockbuster is now on DVD and Blu-ray, but if you're going to get it, get the Blu-ray, because this movie looks excellent. It's, vi- I mean, all the story shortcomings that this movie might have, you know, we've talked about this and talked about this and talked about this, but there is no denying that the Academy Award winning special effects and the Academy Award winning cinematography shine in high definition. So if you're going to see it in home video, make it Blu-ray. Oh, Corey, you talk about the 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 shortcomings of the movie story, and I, you know, I know uh, a lot of film lover, lovers feel this way too. And I know you particularly. There are movies out there that you just find to be dumb action movies that you love and that you embrace. Right. Do you think that Avatar now, after this Oscar um, aura that it sort of emitted back? For some reason, back when it uh, was initially released, has finally gone. Do you think that you can categorize it now into that dumb action movie Absolutely. genre? Absolutely. I think that that removing it from all the hype and all of the you know game changer uh, comments that were thrown around in the 3D and the you know all the, that whole experience, removing it, watching it on on Blu-ray at home yesterday, I was probably more into it than I was in theaters. Just on that on that level, on the on the level of okay, this is this is silly, this is pulpy, this is fun, and I just had fun with it. Um, it's just it's just such a great eye candy um, that for some reason I didn't really I, I couldn't get into it on that level in theaters in 3D. Well, I can't wait to watch my standard def full screen edition <laughs> uh, VHS. VHS. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's the right way to experience it. James Cameron would be proud. Yeah. So, anything else? Uh, yeah. Um, Crazy Heart, uh, starring the Academy Award winner Jeff Bridges, um, which he won this year for Best Actor, uh, is now on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, I think this is a great film. This is one of my favorites of 2009. Uh, thanks in no small part to Jeff Bridges' excellent performance, uh, but also a sort of overshadowed, even though she was nominated for an Oscar, supporting performance from Maggie Gyllenhaal, who gives the unflashy sort of support that uh, isn't usually recognized in that category, but is nevertheless very good. Uh, and also the, the music, um, the theme from Crazy Heart, as, as you know, won the Oscar this year as well. Um, from Written by T-Bone Burnett and... Uh, Ryan Bingham. Ryan Bingham, yeah. yeah, who shared the name with the character from Up in the Air, right. which is funny. Strange. Um, but but the music's great. Uh, the the acting's great. I mean, it's a very sensitively written and sensitively directed drama. That's yeah. something that could have totally killed the movie, if, if it had bad yeah. music. You know, yeah. When you're making a movie about music, it really helps when you, the music isn't. It helps when you hire T-Bur- T-Burn Burnett, T-Bone Burnett. Yeah. Too. Yeah, they hired T-Burn awesome. Burnett to T-Burn make bad Burnett. music. Yeah. I, I apologize. T-Burn Burnett. Um, 
I know his name. I really do. <laughs> yeah, well, look, uh, I like Crazy Heart, and I like the Jeff Bridges performance and everything. Uh, I won't go too far and call it Oscar bait, which I think a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, consider it to be. Uh, but in a way, I, I, I kind of I kind of agree where, you know, this might be a kind of weird analogy, but it kind of reminds me where you have, um, <clears throat> you know, say you got two basketball teams. One of them is the heavy favorite and uh, they're playing an underdog, and to win the championship, all they have to do is beat the underdog who, you know, probably won't win the game. And uh-huh. it seems like all uh, this director uh, and the crew and the cast, all they had to do was just make a movie that was just good enough, and it was probably going to win Jeff Bridges the Oscar, kind of the same thing. All the all the good basketball team has to do is make enough shots to win the game, and you should have an easy victory, an easy championship. And I think that they, it, had they screwed it up with the music or with some other false story note, he might he might not have won it. But I think it was pretty much a, a guarantee. The first time I saw the trailer, I looked at it, and it was a long time ago. And I said, okay, well Jeff Bridges just won his Oscar. <laughs> um, he's got his, uh, you know, a lot of people also compared it to the wrestler, and maybe right. rightly so. But anyway, he, he deserves it. He's Jeff. Bridges, right, not? and I actually think that metaphor you just described of the you know team mm-hmm. just having to beat the underdog, I think that's a lot more applicable to Invictus, <laughs> which failed. Yeah, to do they that. lost the game. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, also this week um, in a slightly more obscure release, uh, the Criterion Collection has released the wonderful French film Summer Hours. Uh, a couple weeks ago, when uh, special guest Glenn Kenny was on our show, he named this the best movie of 2009. Uh, while I won't go that far, it's I think it probably entered my top 20, at least. Uh, it's very, very good. This is from uh, director Olivier Assayas, uh, and it is a, a really nice story about a, uh, a family who's the matriarchal figure she she dies and uh, entrusts her three children with this estate full of priceless art and family heirlooms uh, and and the rest of the movie is sort of a discussion you know do these these objects of art did they uh, you know do they belong in a museum should they remain in the family and what does that mean exactly when an ob- when a family heirloom passes to a museum? Does it still retain its its power and its significance? It's you know that, that that might not sound like the most accessible or entertaining movie, but this is a really accessible movie uh, for a French language film um, that I recommend wholeheartedly, and it, it raises some interesting ideas that I think viewers are going to appreciate. You know, a movie like that where you, where it's I don't know about death and about you know. Uh, familial ties and not really the sort of thing that people are going to be like oh my god that sounds like a great way to spend my Saturday let me run out and get this but if you're in the right mood I don't know why they didn't put this in three theaters at the Cobb Hollywood 16 and do midnight show yeah yeah, 3D Um, so does that round it out for you? that about rounds it out unless you really want to see Peter Jackson stumble and fall with uh, the lovely bones. I might actually do that, and that's actually uh, one that I'll pull out from the DVD bin uh, this week. Um, I'm just going to, I, I kind of want to see the car crash, you know what I mean? Uh, see, stop and stare. Hey, you might like it. Maybe. You know, uh, I, I got it from the Red Box this week, too, yeah. to rewatch it. And uh, I still think it's a mess, but it is, an, you know, it is at least a mess that knew what it wanted to do and did it, even if that 
was just a terrible idea. The well, whole time. you know, I'm guilty of not being on board uh, right when I heard that Peter Jackson was going to follow King Kong with uh-huh. this. Um, you know, I thought he's Peter Jackson, he'll make it work. Then I saw the trailer, and then I thought he's Peter Jackson, he'll make it work. <laughs> you know. Uh, and then I just didn't end up seeing it, so I'll check it out. And uh, I'll finish Talk Radio today, the Oliver Stone movie starring Eric Bogosian, which I mentioned in the last show. I've had that on Netflix for a while. Uh, and I will finally, I hope to finally watch Billy Wilder's 1950 classic Sunset Boulevard after renting it 400 times from the public library. Can I, can I, I just it. ask, huh? by finally watch, do you mean, you mean you've never seen this before just to clarify no i've never seen it never once no i've started it once it's just one of those things where it's just passed me by or you know Mm. for like uh, let me use another example sunset boulevard kind of falls into this but the ultimate is steven spielberg's et i've never seen that all the way through you're joking (laughs) no i'm not joking and the weird thing is every time i start to watch et whether it was on video a long time ago or on dvd now i fall asleep I fall asleep, and it's not really because the movie is boring. Huh. It's just circumstantial. I might have eaten right. before I watched it, or it might be late at night. But every single time I start it, like 15 minutes in, I fall asleep. It's crazy. Wow. I don't know if I'll ever see that. Maybe I'll watch that this weekend. Yeah, but you I, know, they're both very good movies. Yeah, that's what I hear, <laughs> you know. They're uh, popular. People like them. It's the word on the street. <laughs> I hear E.T.'s good. Uh, but anyway... Um, opening nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16 this weekend, uh, the backup plan starring Jennifer Lopez, not The Rock, this isn't the game plan. Um, the Losers, based on the DC comics, starring Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Chris Evans, and Zoe Saldana, uh, which I don't think people really know exists. Oh, I didn't even. know it existed. Uh, yeah, Oceans. I know it was a comic book movie. <laughs> Oceans, which is getting good traction right now, actually. Yeah. Uh, well reviewed and actually performing fair at the box office. Um, is also playing in Tuscaloosa and Corey's most highly anticipated 2010 release, Kenny Chesney, Summer in 3D, um, here in Tuscaloosa. <laughs> wow, I don't know how to respond to that. Corey spotted sure. it at the 10 o'clock show I, last night. I guess so. Uh, the Noah Baumbach film Greenberg, recently discussed on this show, is also currently playing at the Rave Motion Pictures Theater in Vestavia Hills. Corey, have you made that journey yet? Not yet. I hope to. Maybe tomorrow, maybe Monday. Yeah, you might only have another week to do it. I'm so, surprised it stuck around for longer than yeah, one week, to be too. honest, because I, I was really worried that I was going to miss this, but I didn't have any time to go to Vestavia last week. Yeah, definitely. Maybe in the next couple days. <laughs> um, if you have any feedback, you can email us at 90.7movies at gmail.com. If you feel we've missed something or you have any suggestions as to films we can review or topics we can discuss, please email us. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Aspect Radio or twitter.com slash Aspect Radio. We might even read a comment or two on the air, so keep them coming. And we will podcast this and other episodes of the show. You can find those on our blog, aspectradio.tumblr.com, and that's Tumblr spelled T-U-M-B-L-R. We'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook, and you can catch my and Corey's columns in Tusk Magazine, found in every Friday edition of the Tuscaloosa News. And for Corey Kraft, I am Ben Flanagan. We hope you tune in next week when wedding bells are ringing and we list off our favorite on-screen ceremonies. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back.